0: Turn in your Bible with me please to the book of Matthew. It's found on page 1046 1046 of the Bibles that you have underneath the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, please pull one out and turn to page 1046. Our passage today is Matthew 18 verses 15 through 35. 15 through 35. I want to apologize for our heat issue. It's a bit warm, isn't it? Just like last week. Um, I think what happens is we get all these bodies in here, and suddenly the coolness doesn't work like it did before you got here. So just do your best. Fan one another. Spread good aroma. (laughs) And let's try to focus on the Lord. Matthew eighteen. 15 through 35. Do we have some of our Mexico mission trip team back now? Are you here? Way to go. They're here. Good job. Let's welcome back. Thank you, Lord. for. We're uh, anxious to hear good stories of what God did through you, and I'm sure those will be coming pretty soon. Before I read Matthew 18, beginning verse 15, let me just say that uh, never... I'm pretty confident I can say this. Never in my lifetime has the Bible's teaching on peacemaking been more important. Uh, I think the words in Psalm 46 are very fitting for our day. It says, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. seems like the more diverse our country becomes, the more divided we are. And the Bible, in Matthew 18 as well as other places presents a hopeful vision for what Jesus came to do. He came not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. He came to build a community of peace. And so this morning, I think we're going to see the importance of the topic that we've been looking at the last few weeks This being the third in our three-part mini-series on peacemaking. So listen carefully to God's Word as I read beginning verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay his So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that in love you gave us a written revelation of your heart. And we see here in this passage a great picture of what you hope for your people. So Lord, we ask you to send your spirit and let him equip us to be transformed by the gospel from the inside out. That we might be people who proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. And that the gospel might multiply throughout all the earth. Beginning right here with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, this is the end of our focus on the subject of peacemaking. Let's uh, review. And some of you have not been here, so this will help you. What have we learned so far in this three-part series? Well, first we... Learned about the basis of peacemaking. The basis of peacemaking is the blood of Jesus, we learned. We learned that Jesus is the peacemaker. He has put an end to the cosmic war that humans have been fighting with God by dying for us on the cross. He put an end to the civil war that we often fight with one another. And he even put an end to the uh, covert war that rages inside our own hearts, our own guilt, our own shame, the uh, things that keep us awake at night and things like that. Second thing we talked about next week was the imperative of peacemaking. talked about this last week. And we learned that we're not called only to feel peace. We're called to make peace. And the way we do that, we talked about, is by first looking into our own hearts. Earlier this morning, we confessed our sin. We said, uh, Lord, help us take the log out of our own eye. That's what it is to look at our own idols and repent of our own idolatries, take our sin humbly to the cross, and believe the good news that God gives grace to the humble. All of that was last week. Today I want to get a bit more practical and talk about the means of peacemaking. How do we do it? Well, there are several different ways that people respond to conflict. And they're pictured here on this little diagram from which uh, uh, I got this from... uh, Ken Sandy, who did a lot of work on peacemaking in the book called The Peacemaker. There are, for the, to begin with, there are escape responses. Escape responses. When something happens, we get, into, we get into a conflict, we get into a struggle with somebody else, a lot of times what our first tendency is is to deny the problem. Denial. We pretend the problem doesn't even exist. We minimize it. We say it'll go away. Somebody asks us, hey, what's wrong? I I, I know something's wrong. Oh, Oh, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm just fine. That's denial. Another kind of escape response is flight. We run away from the problem. You know, this is what people do when they end a friendship without trying to work through the struggle or when they simply quit the job because they don't like it, or they find another church because they don't like something that's happening, they file for divorce without trying to work on their marriage and go to counseling and so on. That's called flight. And then worst case scenario would be suicide. And you may know people like this. The conflict was so intense, and they were so hopeless, and so without any options that they simply take their own life. Sadly, I've known several people in my own lifetime who took that most drastic escape response. I'm going to call the escape method peace faking. Uh, yeah, it, there's a veneer of peace there. There's a there's a sort of a, a lack of problems, but it's all fake because we haven't dealt with it. So that's the way people escape conflict. Another kind, though, on the other end of the uh, spectrum. Would be attack responses. Uh, let's call that peace breaking. A lot of times, when someone is at odds with another person, they just lash out and attack him or her. And there are several ways that this might happen. One is by assault, uh, literally a physical assault. Uh, they knock them, uh, they knock down. They they physically attack them. Or it could, if it's not physical, be verbal through gossip or slander it might be by ruining someone's uh, reputation financially or professionally all of that's assault another way that I guess most people today immediately think of handling conflict is by taking somebody to court we see those ads on the uh, on TV all the time for various attorneys and this is litigation sometimes it's necessary we would all admit that sometimes it is necessary to take someone to court but Christians are warned not to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are to settle our differences here within the church. And then you might know that the third and most drastic form of attack response to conflict is murder. And we read about that in the newspaper every single day. As I think about these two, you know, I, I first needed to deal with my own heart And I see how readily I gravitate toward the far left end of that slippery slope. Yeah, I'm pretty good at escape responses. I think I could write a book on escape responses to conflict. Partly, it's due to the home in which I grew up. My mom and dad were masters at escape and attack. My mom was on the attack side. Her name was Mother. That says it all right there, right? She wasn't mom or mommy or ma mother. She ruled our home with an iron fist. She was mani- manipulative. She was often cold and calculating. And what did my dad do? He just did the escape route. He, uh, he just literally would leave many times or hide behind a newspaper or come home and start drinking and escape that way. And so I didn't see any kind of good model for handling conflict. So I myself have tended to be a person who tends to deny or flee. Haven't yet committed suicide, praise God. But the escape looks awfully attractive to me. What about you? I hope that you're neither one. I hope that you're going to choose the middle route, which is called the peacemaking response. Not peace faking or peace breaking, but peace making. And notice that I didn't call it peacekeeping. There's a big difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. In fact, I would say peacekeeping is really more of an escape response. I just want to keep the peace. I just want everybody to settle down. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to rock the boat. You know, that's peacekeeping. It might look good on the outside, but it's not peacemaking. There's several different ways we might be peacemakers. One is Simply overlooking an offense. Overlooking someone's sin or mistake. You know, because the Bible has a lot to say about being busybodies. We are forbidden from being busybodies who go around watching other people, waiting until they slip up and then pouncing on them. See, that's, that's a busybody. That's a fault finder. And that would be sin against God. We don't need to be people like that, members of the Christian Gestapo. We need to be people who are making peace. So overlooking someone else's fault is often the way to go. It says in Proverbs nineteen eleven, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now we're not going to talk anymore about overlooking, but I just want to make sure you understand That often, that's what you need to do. A second form of peacemaking would be reconciliation. And that's where we're going to settle today. So I'm going to just move on to the third. The third form is negotiation. Negotiation is where you try to come to terms with another person over things like finances and property rights and so on. Now, often there are other forms of peacemaking that involve other people helping you. We're not going to touch on that today. You can read Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. He talks in there about things like mediation and arbitration and even church discipline. Church discipline is treated in the Matthew 18 passage beginning at verse 17. And that's a whole nother sermon in itself. So we're basically going to skip right over that and focus on reconciliation. But I just want you to know that there are other forms of peacemaking responses besides the three that are listed there. These are more of the personal things that you and I can do when we're involved in conflict. We can overlook the offense, we can work toward reconciliation, or we can talk about negotiation and work our way to a mutually compatible solution to the problem. But in the interest of time today, we're going to talk about The second one, which is right there up at the top of the diagram, reconciliation. What can you do, what can I do, beginning right now, to foster reconciliation within the body of Christ, within our church, within your home? Maybe even God will use you to foster it at work or at school or elsewhere. Two things. You can speak truth when someone needs to be corrected, and you can give grace when someone needs to be forgiven. That's our plan. Let's dive into that first point. In order to promote reconciliation and be a peacemaker, you can speak truth when somebody needs correction. Look at verses 15 and 16 of our text. It says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, and let me pause right there and say that many manuscripts don't even contain the words against you. So it might simply say, if your brother sins. And I I favor that translation. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What we're learning from the lips of Jesus here is that when someone has hurt you truly, when someone has hurt other people, when you know that someone is hurting himself or herself, or when someone is engaged in a behavior or maintaining a hardened attitude that is clearly dishonoring to God, Jesus says, go. Go and tell him his fault. In other words, speak with him about it. Bring up the matter. Find a time, find a place to talk through the issue that's bothering you. Expose it, bring it to the light, and talk about it. You know, when I think about most of us, and I'm throwing myself in there, I think most Christians have a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to this whole matter of confrontation. We're so reluctant to have an honest conversation with each other. You know what that is? That is disobedience to God. When we refuse to deal, when we refuse to share, when we don't talk about something that we really see that is wrong, that needs to be talked through, it's disobedience not to deal with it. Ephesians 4.25 says to put away falsehood and speak truth with your neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. We are a community. We're brothers and sisters. We're united by the blood of Jesus. We're supposed to speak truth to each other. You're not doing anybody a favor by keeping silent when someone needs to hear you speak up. Imagine that a test comes back to your doctor that shows that you have cancer. And so you go to the doctor's office for the the follow-up and you say, Doctor, how am I? He knows you have cancer, but he says, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Now that might make you feel better right then and there. But you're going to die of cancer. That's not doing you a favor. Nor is it doing our brother or sister a favor when we stay silent. You know, some of you have come to me when you've disagreed with something I did or said. There have been times when I've hurt you and you've come to me and you've said, I want you to know that hurt me. And I'm telling you, it stung I don't like to hear that. You don't like to hear that. But the result was good. It helped me learn and grow. It healed the relationship. It glorified God. There's everything good about it. I told you a couple of weeks ago in my sermon that I had a life-changing conversation with a brother with whom I'd been in conflict. We got together. We talked about it. There were tears. There was a hug at the end. I mean, it was so redemptive. It was so healing simply because I knew I needed to speak some truth. Listen, conflict is not an enemy to be feared, conflict is not an obstacle to be avoided. It's an opportunity for the gospel, it's an opportunity to serve and love another person. Who knows? Jesus says you might gain your brother, you might gain your sister. As I was studying this passage this week, I was struck by the immediate context of our passage. Look at the verses just above verse 15, starting in verse 12. Uh, Jesus says in verse 12, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Oh, isn't that a great passage? Isn't that showing you God's heart not only for his people, but for us as we treat one another? God left the 99, as it were, to pursue you, and he now calls you and me to pursue one another to talk through matters and speak the truth. Jethro did that with his son-in-law Moses. Can you imagine that conversation? How would you if you, some of you are married you have a father-in-law? How would you like your father-in-law to come and talk to you honestly about a sin in your life? It'd be pretty awkward, wouldn't it? But that's what Jethro did. He was so loving, he was so wise. He came to Moses and said, "Moses, you're trying to do it all yourself. You need to appoint some elders." And so he spoke truth. The prophet Nathan did that with David. Don't you know that had to be a hard conversation? David's the king of Israel. The prophet Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man. You're in an adulterous relationship. You murdered your friend. Paul did that with the apostle Peter. A fellow apostle. But he spoke the truth right there in front of them all. He said, Peter, you're acting like a hypocrite. See, throughout the Bible, we see people who were willing to take the risk, to take the gamble and stand before a brother or sister out of love and say, this is something I see. I can't overlook it. See, keep in mind that other uh, response. Sometimes you've got to overlook, right? But these are instances where it's, it's hurt you too deeply or it's hurting other people or it's dishonoring to God or it's hurting themselves. And so you speak the truth. Now, here's an important question. What do you do when you are the offender? What do you do when you're the one who may have hurt someone else? Well, hold your place in Matthew 18 and turn to Matthew 5. It's on the screen as well if you don't want to flip to that. But Matthew 5, look at verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says, here's what you do when you are the one who... Who has hurt someone else. Are you willing to speak the truth to yourself? Are you willing to let someone speak the truth to you? Matthew 5.23 If you're offering your gift at the altar. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. And go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Jesus doesn't give us an out. <laughs> Whether you've been hurt by someone, or someone else has been hurt by someone, or you have hurt someone, Jesus says, You go take the initiative. You take the first step. You talk about it with that person. Maybe you didn't hurt her. Maybe you didn't hurt him. You just think you might have. You go. And you ask, brother, sister, did I hurt you? Did what I say offend you? If it did, oh, I want to apologize to you. I am so sorry. And she says, oh, no, no, no. I didn't even know. What are you talking about? That's okay. That's what we're supposed to do. Don't fake peace by one of the escape responses. Don't break peace by one of the assault responses. Make peace. And by the way, it works the other way around as well. Not only must you speak truth when someone else has done something wrong, you must also be willing to receive truth when you need correction. Friends, wouldn't it be great if what I'm describing were characteristic of every home represented in this room? Wouldn't it be great if our homes were places where truth is clearly but gently spoken and humbly received without being harsh or defensive, without accusing each other or getting angry. You know, maybe you can't change the environment of your school. Maybe you're going to have to live with something in the environment of your workplace. But you can change the atmosphere of your home. You can. You must. If you're a believer in Jesus... You've got to change the atmosphere of your home and make it a place of gentle, clear truth and humble reception of same. What a testimony that would be to the power of the gospel, right? And wouldn't it be great if our church were more and more this kind of place, a place where truth is clearly but gently spoken and humbly received. Sometimes I hear... That somebody is struggling with a church decision. But instead of speaking to a pastor or an elder, they choose the escape response or the attack response. And nothing improves. Sometimes I hear that somebody has had his or her feelings hurt by somebody else. But instead of going to them and talking about it, they leave the church or or they simply retreat and withdraw or they allow, worst of all, a root of bitterness to take root in their heart and to grow up into a tree of, of resentment and destroy the relationship. Don't do that. Don't do that. Ray Ortland said something I think so beautiful. He said, how we treat one another reveals what we really think about God. And I would add that how we treat one another has an enormous impact on what lost people think about God. I want you to know something, that we have a peacemaking team in the works now, and we want to help, and we need your help as well. This team is uh, headed up by Wendy Moore. I'm going to ask these people to stand. Uh, Put them on the spot a little bit. Wendy Moore, Buddy Hall, Rob Rogers, Paul Cornwell, Tim McGuire, and myself right now. This is the, look around, you can spot a few of them. These are a few of the people on our peacemaking team. Thank you. You Sit down. We had a meeting the other night. We've met several times and things are coming together. I want you to know we're not experts. (laughs) Uh, We're not experts, but we're learning some conciliating skills. And if you're having trouble with a relationship, it could be at work, it could be at home, maybe you're with your parents, your kid, your, uh, your spouse, one of us will sit down with you and try our best to help you look at that situation and figure out a strategy of how to deal with it, how to work it out. You could actually help us by calling upon us because we need practice. <laughs> we need some situations where we can implement the conciliating skills that we've tried to learn. Do you know why I was able to get to a place of reconciliation with that buddy I was telling you about earlier? It was because somebody coached me first. He helped me see an idol in my life. He helped me see something that I needed to repent of. And he gave me some help as he asked me questions. I kind of figured it out on my own. He was just there to sort of help me get through it. So talk to me. I'll be your contact, I'll be your liaison to this team, or you can talk to any one of those people that just stood up. We'd love to hook you up with somebody on our team that can help you out. So, let's move on. First, to be a peacemaker, speak truth. And receive truth. But secondly, Jesus says to give grace when someone needs forgiveness. Give grace when someone needs forgiveness. I read the story there, beginning in verse 21, where Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And boy, he thought Jesus would say, wow, you're so right, you're being so generous. Because the rabbis of the day taught that you should forgive someone three times, no more. So Peter thinks he's being very generous by saying seven, and Jesus says, no Sorry, Pete, 70 times 7. Or another reading might be 77 times. You get his point. You never stop forgiving. And then Jesus proceeds to tell this story about a master and two servants. The first servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, you and I might not have any real... uh, uh, understanding of that amount of money, it was extraordinary. A talent was the largest denomination of Roman currency in that day. One talent was worth about 20 years' worth of wages. So do the math. 20 times 10,000. Herod the Great's annual revenue from his entire kingdom was 900 talents. The Queen of Sheba gave David... 120 talents of gold. King, uh, King Solomon, I'm sorry. Even had the man sold himself and his family into slavery, he couldn't come anywhere close to paying back this debt. The top price for a slave in those days was just one talent. <laughs> so we're talking about in our, days, uh, in our terms today, maybe a billion dollars or more is what he owes his master. It's an extraordinary amount of money. But what does the master do? He forgives the man his debt. Now that you know how big a debt that is, don't you appreciate that more? Oh yeah, I forgive you. He didn't have to work himself into slavery. He didn't have to pay it back at all. I forgive you. You are free. But then oddly enough, this this servant goes out, finds a servant who owes him just a hundred denarii and throws him in prison. Now, a hundred denarii was not an insignificant amount of money. It amounted to several months' worth of wages. But compared to 10,000 talents, it was nothing. So what's the meaning of the parable? Well, it's in verse 33 of this chapter. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, the the river of forgiveness should never run dry. Why? Why? Because Jesus has forgiven you for an ocean full of sin. No offense against you can remotely compare with the enormity of your sin against God. But God gives grace. He gives grace and He says, forgive one another as I in Christ have forgiven you. I know, I know, forgiveness is not easy. I know that there are times when It's a process that's going to take some time. It's going to take tears. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take repentance. I know all that. We've talked about all that before. But if you do not forgive, you are actually sentencing yourself to a slow death by the cancer of resentment and bitterness. So run to the cross, friends. Run to the cross where your hands hammered the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. Believe that He's taken your sins and remove them as far as east is from west and ask Him for the grace that you need to cancel that other person's debt. Listen, judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming. If the person who hurt you needs the judgment of God, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. In the meantime, let him go. Cancel the debt. If God has had mercy on you, How can you not have mercy on somebody else? Well, I'm sure you've been following the Ebola virus outbreak in the news, right? In West Africa. About 900 West Africans, as of yesterday, have died of the disease so far. It causes this massive amount of internal bleeding, has a mortality rate of something like 60 to 90%. But I'm sure you've been inspired, as I have, by this man. Dr. Kent Brantley. And I'm sure many of you know the story. He volunteered to go to Liberia. He left his wife and a couple of kids. He's age 33. He's a family practice doctor. He's working with Samaritan's Purse over there. He was working over there in Liberia. But he contracted the virus. He got the Ebola virus. He was offered an experimental drug. There was one dose And he said, let her have it, speaking of his nurse. Now, as it turns out, the good news is there was more than one dose. And he received the experimental drug. And he's actually doing much better now. But in that moment, think about it. There's only one dose? Let her have it. He gave away the healing serum. On the cross, there was no serum for Jesus. He took your sin virus into himself and gave you his righteousness. That's the gospel. Let that gospel transform you into the likeness of Christ who came into this world bringing truth and grace. And let's pray for the grace that we, every one of us, will be a peacemaker. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we're righteous in Christ if we have trusted in him. We don't need to be self-protective or proud or defensive or fearful. We can be people of truth. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've forgiven us. So we can forgive those who sin against us and be people of grace. Holy Spirit, we pray for these things that we've talked about these last three Sundays. They are impossible apart from your work in our lives. And so we ask, we submit to you, we, we ask you, O oh Lord, that you will transform us into people of truth and grace. People who go around making peace, spreading the fragrance of Jesus everywhere we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.